As we are on our journey through the book of Galatians, we're coming to the very crux of this book. Very critical verses, and we'll dismiss our children at this time for our children's ministry tonight. Uh, We won't continue our journey of spiritual warfare, at least I won't be preaching that tonight. And we'll have evangelist Scott Pauley that'll be preaching. It's the Southwide Baptist Fellowship this week in Lawrenceville, Georgia. If you're freed up and like to get over there for that, encourage you to do so. And Brother Pauley um, had uh, worked out, um, obviously being there for that and able to come over and preach tonight. And just so happens we're celebrating our um, my eighth anniversary being here at Canaan Baptist Church is celebrating on our end. I know for some of you, you're counting down the eight down and how many more to go. But for us, we're celebrating God's goodness to us. And, and uh, Brother Paulie will be preaching, and we're glad for that. And um, we um, look forward to what God has in store. He has much more, much more in store. And... Um, Galatians chapter number five, we've talked about the three ways people can live the Christian life. And Brother Cherry, don't put those up there quite yet. And we're going to do a little bit of a review this morning and we always do a review because again, when they would write a, a letter, they would take the letter in the congregation and they would read the letter all in one setting. And so this would be so comprehensive, but we're taking them in parts because the Bible does tell us and Another letter that the Spirit of God had Paul write, he said, preach the word. So not only would they read it, then they would expound upon and preach. And part of the preaching in 2 Timothy 4, it tells us to confront, but also convict. It means that there's a persuasion that is to be done based upon the authority of the word. But because we're doing them in sections, I want to always reach back and, and, and make sure we overlap. We call it review. Someone said you'd be done a lot faster if you didn't do the review. Well, we wouldn't be because I just tacked the review in the middle of it somewhere. So it's going to get reviewed somehow. We have to, if we're going to stay in context, because it's more than a sermon, it's a message. And he's given us the message here and uh, therefore we've got to get it. But three ways in which people can live the Christian life. And we mentioned these, somebody tell me one of them. Legalism. All right. The second one would be license. And the third one is liberty. Two doesn't work. And that's legalism and license. The third is the way God wants us to live. And it's in liberty. All right. Let's expound upon this. Who can tell me a definition for legalism? Brother Baker. Law focused. And in this particular context of the book of Galatians, what was the law that was being focused upon? What part of the law? Yeah, Brother Baker, the other Brother Baker and uh, circumcision here. And so the, by the Judaizers telling the Galatians, if you really want God's favor, you've got to reach back to the Old Testament law and you need to be circumcised, and therefore they're focusing on the law. Now, we saw a few weeks ago in chapter number 5 that if the conclusion was, you didn't know the whole context, the conclusion, somebody would say, well, I'm going to please God, and therefore I'm not going to be circumcised, and God's favor, God will be pleased because I'm not going to put myself under the law. I'm going to have God's favor because I'm not going to be circumcised, Is that person free of legalism? No, it's still legalism because the focus is God's favor based upon what I do. And that's what the law tends to to do. It gets people into this, am I doing enough? What am I doing? What are you doing? What am I doing? And it's taking our eyes off the real issue. License, however, would be what? Somebody give me a, a definition here of license. It's what? Flesh indulgence. It's still still self-dependence, just like the law. It's self-indulgence. It's indulging self. And it's because of what? What does it do with the law? What does the license tend to do? No law. It just, we're not going to worry about the boundaries. That's why sometimes people can look at a 
new evangelical church, and some may know what that means, some may not, but those who have drifted to the left, those who you can just walk in and take a few sniffs, and you look around and you see, well, they don't really have a lot of boundaries here. And sometimes people, especially young people, can, can conclude, well, those, those young people seem happier than the ones in our church, and we've got a bunch of boundaries and rules and laws. Well, one of the reasons that they may seem happier, Paul tells us they're not experiencing joy if there's not a real liberty, but they may seem happy only because they're indulging in self. You know, a, a, for example, a parent who says to the uh, 15-year-old, it doesn't matter what time you come in, whatever seems good to you. Um, you, don't, you don't want to come in at, until 3 in the morning, whatever, we, we, we love you. Well, that kid may seem like, this is great, this is the way to live. And others may say, Mom, Dad, why don't you be like those parents? I'll tell you why uh, I couldn't, and a lot of you parents wouldn't be that way, is because you do love your kids. And so the boundaries isn't going to make somebody unhappy. It's rather not living in liberty that's going to take away the joy and the happiness. Rules are not the problem. It's the response to God's rules that's the issue. It's a heart problem. And so the issue is whatever you focus on, you depend upon. Liberty would be what? How would we define liberty? It's Jesus' focus. If you focus on Jesus, do you think you're going to keep His laws? If you love me, Jesus said, keep my... Yeah. You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do whatsoever I command you. John says in 1 John, the commandments of the Lord, they're not grievous. They're not a burden. No, the problem is not the burden of the law. The problem is when we don't have a love for the Lord. Spiritual freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Suppose you saw a football game yesterday and a football player catches the ball and he wants to play the game, however, without restrictions. He ignores the, the, uh, the boundaries on the field. He ignores the referees. He goes out of bounds, but he goes past the sideline. He goes up into the stadium. He runs around, comes in through the other side, and he sneaks into the end zone from the other side of the stands. Well, it's not going to be a legitimate touchdown. You cannot play the game of football without following the rules because if you do not have the rules, it's chaos. You try to live the Christian life without God's boundaries and God's rules, it's only chaos. What's the antidote against using this liberty that Paul says, don't use this liberty to the flesh, to gratify the flesh? Well, look at it. Let's go ahead and read our text. Let's stand together. We're going to look at verse 13 and 14, these two verses this morning. Verse 13, for brethren... Ye have been called unto, say the word, liberty. liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now look at this. This is interesting. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I want to preach this morning on this very thought that's right there in our text. Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Thank you. Please be seated. There is an antidote to what Paul's saying here, and that is using our liberty for an occasion to sin. There are many who have said, I'm, un, I'm free from the law, I'm in Christian liberty, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. And the antidote to that, the antidote to abusing your liberty, misusing liberty in Christ, the antidote is found in the exhortation, by love, serve one another. We're familiar with this Greek word for love here, it's that highest form of love, it's agape. It refers not to human affection. This is not to brotherly love. This is, 
the kind of love that God showed us when he sent Jesus, his son, to the cross. It is a divine love produced in the heart of the, of the believer who's yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. And it's the love with which that believer should love his fellow believers. In other words, this love, when he says, by love, serve one another, he's telling us, this is humanly impossible. It is not in your power. It's in God's power. That is by design. And he's telling us this because this is the litmus test of our liberty. This is the answer for our liberty. It's the antidote to abusing our liberty. What does Christian freedom look like? Verse 13, it looks like a life of love. By love, serve one another. He's saying that the life of liberty is lived by love. For all the law, verse 14, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now in the Old Testament, there were 10 commandments. Jesus took those 10 commandments and he distilled them into two. He says, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul comes along and he takes what Jesus took and he distills it into one word. All the law is fulfilled in one word, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want to say that's an interesting twist. All the way through this book, Paul has been saying, you're not under the law. You're not under the law. Now he turns right around and says, we serve on the basis of a law. Are you still with me? Amen. You don't look too excited. What is the law? It's the law of love. Galatians 6 and verse number 2, we're going to get there eventually. He says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of who? Christ. Christ. What is the law of Christ? It's the law of love. The amazing thing about love is that it takes the place of all the laws that God ever gave. What does Romans chapter 13 tell us? Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. Romans 13 tells us in verses uh, 8 through 14 that God's love, loving people the way God loves us, uh, loves us, it solves every human relationship problem. Because if you love people because you love Christ, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie about them. You're, you won't envy them. And you won't try to hurt them or excuse hurting them. See, love in the heart is God's substitute for laws and threats. When I begin to let the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of love flow out of my life in service to other people, and I love people the way I'm supposed to love people, then I have found the life, the true life of Christian liberty. It's not legalism. It's not license. It's liberty that loves and serves others. See, love, what is love? Let me give you a definition of love here. It's a biblical love. Biblical love is what we're talking about. It's the decision to compassionately, righteously, sacrificially seek the well-being of another. Biblical love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Since Jesus Christ served us through love, why would he expect his disciples to do anything less? This love that he's talking about, the love that Jesus demonstrated, is a love whose chief essence is self-sacrifice for the benefit of the one who is loved. And this love means death to self, which means defeat for sin. And since the essence of sin is self-will and self-gratification, the essence of love is Christ. 
See, the word love here is the agape. It's a biblical love. It's the decision to compassionately, righteously, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another. But he says here, not only to love, but he says, we've been called unto liberty. Don't use it for self, but by love, serve. The word serve is the word, Greek word, doulos, uh, servant, doulou is the verb form, to render service, to do that which is for the advantage of someone else. Again, and, and this, this is the crux of the whole book. You don't find self being pampered. You don't find self being promoted. You find exactly what Jesus told his disciples early on, deny yourself. Because you're not going to find true liberty until you understand the essence of what the Christian life and what God came to give us is all about. It's not about you. It's about others. Well, that sounds miserable. Not if you meet Jesus. Amen. Now, some messes are worth making. Some are not. You ever turned your kitchen into a disaster zone to put on a dinner for your close friends or family? You who do it may not deem it to be important, but those who benefit from it, they say that that's a mess that's worth having. But letting your two-year-old finger paint on the living room wall, well, that's probably not a mess worth making. Church is often a messy place. But it is a mess worth making. At least God thinks so. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, the church is the precious blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. Clearly God is convinced the church is a mess worth making. Unfortunately, many Christians are not. Many times Christians prefer church to be a mess-free zone. And they're easily upset when they see the mess that's so often a part of this messy business we call church. Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp, in a book about relationships entitled A Mess Worth Making, said this. Listen, quote, while we would like to avoid the mess and enjoy deep and intimate community, God says that it is in the very process of working through the mess that intimacy and true community is found. Did you get that? So if we desire, truly desire meaningful Christian community and church, the question we must ask ourselves is this, how do we work our way through the mess? The churches of Galatia, they had a real messy problem. And Paul writes this letter to help them sort through the mess, both biblically and theologically. And so he does this in the first four and a half chapters. But then in chapter 5, verse 13, where we are this morning, all the way to chapter 6 and verse number 10, he turns to some very practical, very practical, and he provides the Galatians with specific instructions as to how to work through the mess that they find themselves in. And this section is, again, the crux of the whole understanding of the book of Galatians. See, these Galatians were so wrapped up in the law. Are you keeping the law? I'm keeping the law. How well are you keeping the law? I'm keeping the law better than you. Which part of the law are you keeping? Well, I'm keeping all of it. Well, you can't be keeping all of it because if you're keeping all of it, you wouldn't be failing over here. Who are you to judge? Well, you started to judge when you brought up the law. And Paul says, you want to talk about the law? We'll talk about the law. You want to find what the law is all about it is found in one word love Amen. and Paul says that ain't happening half of my children are not here and uh, so I don't want to embarrass either one actually I don't mind it but but it, it wouldn't be healthy if they don't understand it but we are still focusing on what we focused on this past summer first Corinthians 13 and Priscilla's gotten it down Gretchen's getting it down and 
And so they'll quote many times in the vehicle, it's our resuscitation time of 1 Corinthians 13. And one will begin to quote and the other one corrects them. And, and then they go at it and they start arguing. They get into arguing and fighting. We have to referee, blow the whistle, time out, throw the flag, throw one out the vehicle. And I remind them, do you know we're fighting over 1 Corinthians 13 love chapter? Do you understand that? And none of us are feeling very lovely right now, including your daddy. And so let's get this thing together, knock it out, and love one another and quote it. And that's what Paul's dealing with. Because it got messy when they took their eyes off what it's really about. The opening few verses of this selection that we're looking at this morning of our text identifies the key to working successfully through the mess we call church. By love, serve one another. By the way, this will eliminate cliques. Cliques is because of self, not because of love. But Paul surrounds this call to love with words intended to motivate these Galatians. I want you to see the outline here. Three things. Number one, he gives us a reminder in verse 13. A reminder. How does God call us to freedom? He's giving us a reminder. And then in verse 13, the second part of the verse, and verse 15, he gives us a warning. He's going to warn the Galatians. He's going to warn them because your flesh is going to rob you of your freedom and destroy your service to others. And then he's going to give an encouragement. And that's found in verse 14. Each of these, the reminder, the warning, and the encouragement is meant to stir up the Galatians. And it's meant to stir us up. To serve one another in love. The very thing Paul believes will enable the Galatians to find their way through their current mess. So let's look at it this morning, starting out with the reminder. God calls us to freedom by calling us to himself and by uniting us to his son. Remember, these legalists thought they had the answer to the problems in laws and threats. But Paul explained that no amount of legislation is ever going to change man's basic sinful inclination. It's not a law on the outside. But it's love on the inside that makes the difference. So we need another power within, and that power comes from the Holy Spirit of the living God. Do you know at least 14 references in the book of Galatians are given to us referring to the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is not just a divine influence. Many times when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of what He does. But may I remind you that he is part of the Trinity. We call him the third person of the Trinity. That's not his rank. That is not his order. He is God. Someone says you can't talk too much about the Holy Spirit or you're going to rob glory from Jesus. Jesus is not jealous of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus and the Father. You say, how do you explain it? I don't know that I can. I don't know that we can comprehend it. That's just the fact of who he is. He's not as much a divine influence as he is a divine person. See, what the, what the Father, what God the Father planned for you God the Son on the cross purchased for you so that God the Holy Spirit personalizes in you. And that's why he moves inside. That's why Jesus told his disciples, I have to go away so that he, another just like me, will come and be with you forever because he will personalize what Jesus purchased, what the Father planned. See, we are free insofar as we are rightly related to God. Think about it this way. Liberty plus love, it equals service to others. Your liberty without genuine love, it's license. It's slavery to sin. 
See, we were called to freedom when God called us into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. If you're not saved this morning, if you're not a child of God, I'm not talking about if you're religious. By being in a service like this, you can think, well, I'm religious and you might be. But religion will not get you to heaven. Religion will not make you a part of God's family. Only salvation, only answering the call to salvation and calling upon him to be your savior. When God calls you, he frees you. When God saves you, he frees us from ourselves. See, apart from God's powerful delivery, we're enslaved to self. The Bible calls ourself the flesh. The flesh, it's fallen self. This is the self turned in upon itself. It's flesh. And we experience our fallen flesh every single day. Sometimes every single hour and sometimes you may feel it every single moment. But now don't despair. Don't think you've got to get through this life just gritting your teeth because uh, you're, 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 you're doomed and there's no hope. No, there's hope in Jesus. But I'm just saying when, when a person gets saved, the part, there has to be a resurrected part. There has to be a place within us that is made completely new. The old nature dies. The new nature is resurrected and it's new. It's a new nature. And that is where the spirit of God resides in our new nature. But our body it's not new. And some of you have known that for a long time. And we still have some of these, this residual effect that's carried over from before we were saved. And, and our tendency is we will yield because we're so shallow. We're so used to doing, well, whatever I feel like eating today, I'm going to eat. And whatever self wants today, self gets today. We don't use this motto, but some of you can stick it on your bumper sticker because you live this way. You stick it as a bumper sticker. If self ain't happy, you're never going to be happy. And so you gratify self and you don't know what it's like to live in liberty. And so number one, Paul deals with us with a reminder. When you got saved, God called you to freedom by calling you to himself. Number two. He gives us a warning. And the second part of verse 13, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Verse 15, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. We'll deal with that one later. See, your flesh will rob you of your freedom and destroy your service to others. Your flesh will rob you of your freedom and destroy your service to others. While the flesh has been crucified, it's not entirely gone. When God calls us to himself through the gospel and unites our lives to the life of his crucified and risen son, our flesh has been executed. But this liberating spiritual reality is what we celebrate in that line of that great hymn of Charles Wesley. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. We become free only, listen, by being executed. Our sinful, fallen self being executed with Jesus Christ. But here's the challenge. Even though the flesh is crucified, it's not altogether eliminated. Not until we get to heaven. We still live in some sinful, fallen bodies. We still inhabit the sinful, fallen world. And therefore, although we wait for that ultimate freedom of our glorified bodies until then... We're living in a present evil age, Galatians 1 and verse 4. And as a result, the flesh is constantly looking for an opportunity, not only to invade our lives, but to take back control of what it lost. Also to wage war in us and through us in the lives of other people. The flesh is the sworn enemy of relationships and community. Self-centered passions and desires are what wreak havoc in all of our relationships. The flesh is always looking for a beachhead in our lives. 
which can then become a base of operations from which the flesh can work to undermine every single one of our relationships, whether the relationship is with God or with our employer, our neighbor, our family member, our roommate, our classmate. See, the flesh is utterly ruthless. It'll seize every opportunity we give it. It's always with us and the world is always around us and it's always encouraging us to let down our defense and let the flesh gain ground. In what ways do we give the flesh an opportunity to establish a beachhead or a base of operations in our lives? Let me give you six common ways we give the flesh an opportunity. When we coddle, number one, when we coddle an unforgiving spirit or we harbor a grudge toward another person. When we coddle an unforgiving spirit or harbor a grudge toward another person, you're in the flesh. You're not in liberty. You're in flesh. Secondly, when we fail to overlook minor offenses. When we fail to overlook minor offenses. Sometimes people in sarcasm would say, well, what do you consider minor? Well, how long have you been married? Do you harbor every minor offense? If so, you're not happily married. Let me put it this way. When you don't give people slack in the family that Jesus purchased with his own blood called the church... But you give your family members slack because you consider them to be your blood. You're minimizing Jesus' blood and you're promoting your blood over his. See, a fallen sinful human being continues to throw pebbles in another person's path. And that's inevitable. But Proverbs 19 verse 11 tells us it is wisdom to overlook an offense. It's wise to overlook an offense. Well, I didn't, I don't think it should have been, I don't think he should have done, I don't think that they did, I don't think they handled, that's not the way I would have done it. Well, when you become promoted by God to being one of the Trinity members, then, then you can have reason to say that. Otherwise, if you want people to overlook your offense, you, if you want to live in liberty and get out of the flesh zone, then you need to minimize the offenses of others. And yet because our flesh is so vain and so proud, we easily get offended, often even by the slightest little thing. I had people say, you offended me because when I raised my hand, you didn't call on me. Maybe I didn't see your hand. But that's the reason you're going to get offended? That's the reason you're going to drop out on God? And somebody said, I, I was offended because you didn't come see me in the hospital. To which I reminded them, you didn't tell me you're in the hospital. Do you think I just make regular routine trips to the hospital? See, don't set up somebody so that you can blame them. If you didn't communicate, don't expect them to communicate. Number three, when we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others. When we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others. In that magnificent celebration that I just mentioned earlier of our kids memorizing, we went through this past summer as a church, 1 Corinthians 13. In that magnificent celebration of love, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7. Love believes all things. In other words, he's saying he puts the best spin on it. I learned this from Tom Farrell when we were in Cuba together a couple years ago. And, and um, someone, another preacher was saying something about another preacher in, in front of Brother Farrell, to Brother Farrell. And Brother Farrell says, love thinks no evil. And what he was saying was, you can believe whatever you want to about our dear brother, but I'm going to think the best and I'm going to think what I know right now with all the limited information we have, love is going to put the right spin on it. 
When we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others, you're allowing your life to become the beachhead for the flesh. Number four, when we indulge ourselves in speaking negatively about others, when we indulge ourselves to speak in a negative manner, James 4 and verse 11 says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed. No corrupt communication proceed. No corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, number five. When we engage in a negative conversation. When we engage in a negative conversation. See, conversations can turn negative in various ways. But as soon as one of those respectable little vices of the tongue shows up on the scene, things like gossip and critical speech and harsh words and insults and sarcasm and ridicule comes in. Also, we need to avoid negative people. Even some believers are chronically negative. They consistently spew criticism or harsh words or sarcasm. As a result, it's tough to be around them without coming away feeling Oily, dirty, as if somehow we've been defiled. I say, pray for them. Seek to build them up in love, but as a rule, avoid going out for coffee with negative people. Avoid hanging out with negative people. You say, well, I, I think they need me. They need something. But not if it affects you with negativity. You say, I can weather it, but some of you are not weathering it well. And you are giving flesh ground in your life and you're not in liberty. Number six. Another way, common way in which we give the flesh an opportunity is when we fail to deal with our personal grievances swiftly and directly. Ephesians 4.26, we find the instruction, be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. But Paul adds, in verse 27 in Ephesians 4, neither give place to the devil. See, when we're slow to deal with our personal grievances, we give not only the flesh, but the devil himself an opportunity to make inroads into our lives and into our communities. We must deal with personal grievances swiftly and by doing so we need to deal with them directly that is person to person and whenever possible it's face to face person to person face to face let me tell you how the devil's got an inroad is if you say I've been offended by but I'm going to tell somebody else about it and sometimes you tell somebody else, I'll tell you what they did. They did wrong and they didn't come directly to me. And here you do the exact same thing. It's because you've given way to the flesh. You're in bondage. And Paul says, deal with it swiftly, directly. And I want to also mention this while we're at this. I'm going to caution you about communicating through technology. I've come to the conclusion that email and texting is a high high-speed landing craft for the flesh. And I'm increasingly convinced that we'd be far better off if we committed never to deliver any bad news to anyone by means of an email or text, but rather face-to-face. -face. And if that's not possible, then by phone. And if that's not possible, then a handwritten letter. Because so often the tone is lost in the translation of technology. It's far too easy to dehumanize the person we're addressing when all we have of that person is their name or email or their phone number. I'm saying that these are six common ways we give the flesh an opportunity to gain influence in our lives through us and in the lives of those around us. These are the ways in which the evil one destroys relationships and kills our church community. If we stop doing these six things, just these six things, it would change the culture of our church overnight. It raised the spiritual temperature of our church family massively. 
This is why it's so important to be vigilant and guarding against the flesh. We should put up rows of barbed wire. We should bury landmines and build gun turrets, mount missile defenses, and put in high-tech radar and alarm systems around our heart and our church family and our family units to protect from the evil seduction of our flesh. This passage seeks to motivate us to serve one another. It gives us a powerful incentive it gives us a sober warning. But then I want you to see last an encouragement. Notice the encouragement, verse 14. He tells us, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. See, by serving one another through love, you can in fact fulfill the whole law. The best and most effective way to keep the flesh dealt with, to keep it at bay, is to starve it by doing the exact opposite of what we did to feed the flesh. Rather than giving into the desires and the passions to protect and promote myself, we should instead, by love, serve one another. See, sometimes this, this mindset comes in, well, if I'm going to be here, this is the only way that I can serve. And usually it's a kind of service of what I want, what makes me look good, and it's not motivated by love. There are many ways in which we can serve one another through love. Let me give you these. And this is the, the, the counter to the six common ways of letting the flesh in. L listen to these. Number one, pray for one another. Pray for one another. Do you know it is nearly impossible to harbor negative feelings? Are you with me still? Amen. Are you awake? Turn to the person next to you and ask, are you awake? Yes. What did they say? Yes. All right. Number one, pray for one another. It's nearly impossible to harbor negative feelings towards someone when we pray for them regularly. Did you know that? You say, I don't believe it. That's because you haven't tried it. Number two, bear with one another. Bear with one another. This means decide to overlook offenses and not let them trip us up. This means letting go of the ways in which others have injured us rather than carrying them around with us. You don't have... You don't have a good enough suitcase to carry around all the offenses that have happened to you. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Amen. Charity is like icing on the cake. I may have mentioned this before but my friend, best friend in high school, Chris Deal just went home to be with the Lord this past year in, in a year's time that he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease it took him and went home to be with the Lord and but in high school we we had a history teacher that was um, he, he was also the defensive line coach in football and so uh, I we just we loved um, uh, coach Jackson and and a tough man, tough, tough, tough man. He, he would, uh, but he would give us grace in, in class and he let us earn extra credit. Not extra credit to be factored in, but if we brought him something that he liked or we made something, we could get two points on our final grade. And so, remember, we would go down to visit family in Florida, and, and Coach Jackson loved orange blossom honey. So I'd bring back a jar of orange blossom honey, two points on my final grade. He also loved, uh, um, oh, it slips my mind, this, the chew that he had, and he would have uh, day's work is what it was. I still remember day's work because uh, I just remember the smell. Because on the football field, I'd be on the ground, I'd get up, and I realized, Smells like Coach Jackson just rolled over, right over into that. What Now, it wasn't the spit. He didn't spit. He swallowed it. 
Now, I just rolled over in a patch when he'd throw it out and he'd get new in. But I'm telling you, he's a tough man. And uh, so if we brought him day's work, it's, I guess it's a plug. It's this little thing, Brother Autry, is that what it is? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, one of these days, I'm going to trip him up, and, uh, but he's so quick. But my mama said, you ain't getting no tobacco for nobody. And so I had to stick with orange blossom honey. But at one time, he said, um, you know what I'd really like is some red velvet cake. So my friend Chris and I, we decided, let's make him red velvet cake. And um, we went home and said, can't be that hard. And we began to work on it. We did it and we got it together. All I could remember is it looked like a triangle. And... Um, and no matter which way we turned it, we could never get it away from the triangular fashion of this cake. So what I decided was, love covers a multitude of sins. So does icing. And we built it up and made it a square with ice. That's the best part of the red velvet cake, was that cream cheese icing. And um, we got the credit before he ever cut into it. It looked good, but a third of the cake was just icing. And, and depending upon which side you cut, some, all you got was icing. And, and it always stuck with me, if icing can cover a multitude of sins, how much more can genuine love for somebody? You said, I can't do it. That's the whole point. You never could. He never said you could. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit in you when you get connected to him. All right, bear one another, bear with one another. Number three, encourage one another with edifying words. Amen. Encourage one another with edifying words. Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Church family, can we strive to be a church that outspeaks the negative 10 to 1? Number four, esteem those who are over us in the Lord. Amen. First Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, I know some may think, well, that's very self-serving for you as a pastor to quote this verse and especially in today, and, and you've designated this as Pastor Appreciation Day. Well, actually, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. I didn't designate that, and we don't have to follow that. But this is just the, the Sunday of our anniversary. And so it may seem self-serving to say, esteem those who are over us in the Lord. But here's the point. If you were to look at, Brother Cherry, can you pull up that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13? I quoted most of verse number 13, but not all of it. Listen to this again. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now notice the last sentence of verse 13. And be at peace among yourselves. Could it be that the peace of a church body is directly related to the esteem that the body shows toward its leadership. I believe that's what the Word of God is saying. I believe that that's what Paul is talking about. So I'm saying, church family, let's seek to be at peace among ourselves. Number five, count others more significant than ourselves. Amen. Can I read to you one of the great passages concerning Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This, my friend, is the mind of Christ. That's what we need is the mind of Christ. Yet I suspect everyone realizes that love is not that easy to come by. Love points not to ourselves. Love points away from ourselves. 
How does that occur? Well, you go back to chapter 5 and verse number 5. I don't want us to ever get over this. But notice the formula. For we, look at it, through the Spirit. It's His power, not ours. And notice the end of verse 5. It's by faith. How can we have the mind of Christ? How can we love as God loved us? It's through the Spirit, and it's by faith. It's recognizing it's His power, not mine. And it's by depending upon Him, not upon our own ability. There's no one, no one more free than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there's no one who's a greater servant of mankind than the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Can I say again, some messes, they're worth making. Some are not. Church is one of those messes worth making. But the key is knowing how to work through the messes when they arise, and they inevitably will, And this passage calls us to work through the messes that we make, whether in church or in life, by serving one another through love. Maria Dyer was born, and with this I'm done, was born in 1837 on the mission field in China, where her parents were pioneer missionaries. Both of her parents died when Maria was a little girl. She was sent back to England. She was raised by an uncle. The loss of her parents, however, did not make her a victim. Nor did it deter her heart, though young heart it was, from the importance of the message of the gospel. At age 16, she along with her sister returned to China to work in a girl's school as a missionary herself at 16. Let me ask Any 16, 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds, what's your passion in life? Her passion was to make the most of Jesus. And five years later, this young lady who lost her parents didn't sulk and sour. Instead, she recognized there's a world out there that needs to know that Jesus loves them. And she went as a 16-year-old, and she worked in a girls' school as a missionary. Five years later, she marries Hudson Taylor, a well-known today for his life of ministry, faith, and sacrifice. Hudson and Maria's work was often criticized, even by other Christians. At one point, Maria wrote, Quote, as to the harsh judgings of the world or to the painful misunderstandings of Christian brethren, I generally feel that the best plan is to go on with our work and leave God to vindicate our cause. End of quote. Amen. Of the nine children that Hudson and Maria had, only four survived to adulthood. Maria herself died when she was just 43. But she believed the cause was worthy of the sacrifice. On her grave marker, these words were inscribed. For her to live was Christ and to die was gain. And a day when many are self-absorbed, and care more about what they can get rather than what they can give. We need a revival of sacrificial love. It was God's love for us that sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And it is that kind of giving love that our world desperately needs. When we love God as we should, our interests fade for self as we magnify Him. By love, serve one another. Let's stand together, please.